This program is a production of the Reformed Forum, an organization devoted to producing and distributing Reformed theological content for a connected age. Online at reformedforum.org. This is East of Eden, a program devoted to the biblical and systematic theology of Jonathan Edwards. Welcome to East of Eden, the biblical and systematic theology of Jonathan Edwards. This is episode five, and I'm your host, Nick Batzig. Again, I am joined today on this show with Jeffrey C. Waddington, who is a teacher of the congregation at Calvary OPC in Ringo's, New Jersey. How are you doing, Jeff? I am enjoying myself thoroughly in the beautiful town of Asbury Park, New Jersey, and good to be here. Nice. Are you all getting a lot of rain up there? A fair bit, actually. Yeah, we are, too. I think there's a lot all over the East Coast right now. We've been getting days of rain, and it's good because we need it. So Nice and wet. Um, We are also uh, joined today again by one of our regular panelists, David Filson. Dave is a teaching pastor at Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee. Dave, it's great to have you on the show. It's good to be here. Hello from Music City. Yes. What's the weather like there? You know, it's good. It's um, It was a little overcast earlier, but it's sunny now, and that's good because my son's first uh, night of contact camp for football begins tonight, and I was worried it might get rained out, but I think it's going to go, so that's good. Oh, very <laughs> nice, very nice. One of the privileges we have of modern technology is that we can record a show with Jeff up there in Philadelphia and Dave in Nashville and me down in Savannah, Georgia, and so um, it's a privilege for us to be able to do this show together and hope it's a benefit to you even from our uh, respective places. We are looking today at another one of Jonathan Edwards' sermons, as um, most of our listeners Listeners will know by this time if you've listened to the earlier episodes. It's the purpose of the show for us to take one of uh, Edwards' uh, many published sermons and to consider the history and the theology and uh, the biblical theology and the systematic theology that he employs, especially. And um, we wanted to enter in on a discussion today of Edwards' sermon, Christ Agony. Our, you'll find it printed in. Um, the two-volume uh, works of Jonathan Edwards, both the Hendrickson uh, edition and the Banner of Truth edition. Um, Jeff has made us aware of the painful small print in which you'll find that. <laughs> yeah. It's also online. You can find a copy of it at um, www.biblebb.com, where a lot of Edwards' sermons have been uh, uploaded online and much easier print to read. Um, but we chose this sermon, and I wanted to introduce this by saying how influential this sermon was and has been for me over the years. There are those uh, things that we read in Christian literature that impact us more than others, and I certainly have a, a treasury of those sermons and and discourses and, and books that I've read that have greatly impacted me. This sermon has been one of the most impacting sermons uh, for me, not just from Jonathan Edwards' writings, but in all of Christian literature. I think it's uh, one of those sermons that I would give to anyone in my church to read and meditate on, hoping they would benefit from it as well. Um, we don't know a great deal about the history of the sermon. Uh, if you go on the WJE website, you'll find that it's not even um, transcribed in uh, total there, but that it is um, 
it's still in sort of piecemeal uh, shorthand form, um, and there's no historical introductions. So, Dave, I wanted to uh, kick it off to you to talk about what we have uncovered, what you've uncovered about the history of the sermon from what little bit of data we have, what sermons, and what was going on in Edward's life when this sermon, Christ Agony, was preached. Yeah, I think you have to do a little bit of sleuthing, really, to um, ascertain much about it historically, because as you said, there's not a historical introduction, uh, etc. I think what you find when you consider that it was preached in 39, October of 39, and then again in the winter and spring of 1757, uh, I think you can safely draw out some things about how this sermon, really the theme of this sermon, uh, fits into Edwards' overall theological program. Um, for instance, the History of the Work of Redemption series, the 30 sermons that made that series up, were preached between March and August of 1739. Well, just a few months later, October that same year, he's preaching uh, this sermon. Well, that the text, Luke 22:44, um, figures into the History of the Work of Redemption series, where Edwards talks about really kind of a physical description of, of Christ's blood his body being blotted with blood. And, you know, in the text of the uh, the agony sermon here, he tries to go into some sort of physiological description of what that must have looked like, what that must have entailed. Well, that figures into the, uh, I believe it's uh, uh, period two. You know, he talks about the three periods in the work of redemption, Christ's work of redemption, figures into period two where he's talking about the satisfaction of Christ. And he describes that and brings that verse uh, that that verse up, but the overall theme of satisfaction um, figures into not only the redemption series, the history of the work of redemption series. Obviously, this sermon in thirty nine, appearing again in seventeen fifty seven. Well, if you consider the fact that the miscellanies uh, of Edwards uh, and in the hard copy, the Yale series, what we go up to is it. 1,360. Right. So the, these yeah. miscellanies begin with miscellany A and then, you know, go through the alphabet and AA, et cetera. Then you start going through a numeric-based system of, um, of numbering them. This theme of the satisfaction of Christ, the atonement, propitiation, et cetera, and a lot of what figures into that in terms of the infinite merit of Christ's satisfaction correlating with the infinite f- offense against God, which, Nick, I know is something that that you like to think about, and we'll probably bring that up in a little bit. Those themes appear across a wide variety of those miscellanies, going back to miscellany 21 all the way to miscellany 1360, and that spans a number of years. And if you think alongside of that, the fact that in 1757, he re-preaches this sermon on Christ's agony, and that is at a period where he's started his, uh, or he has completed, or at least entered into some of his most profound and substantive theological treatises, for instance, uh, 1754, The Freedom of the Will, uh, 1755, The Two Dissertations, 1756, he begins Original Sin, well, then a year later, he preaches this sermon. So my, my point is, this theme of the satisfaction of Christ, still very much on his mind in his more mature, substantive theological reflections, it, it was on his mind and on his heart throughout the entire uh, revival period. In fact, 1739, uh, when he preached the, the sermon first, is five years after his uh, five sermons on the justification uh, series, which in some ways lit the fuse for the First Great Awakening, at least theologically. Um, so, so my point is, 
across the years of revival into the years of his most mature theological reflection. The theme of this sermon appears over and over, either through his preaching it in the Redemption series or this particular sermon, or the themes being, you know, popping up here and there in the miscellanies or at the very end when he preaches it in 1757. Yeah, it's interesting that we don't have um, more scholastic historical background on this because, as I was telling you earlier in our discussion, Dave, when I was looking at the history, as you've pointed out, the close proximity to history of the work of redemption, Edwards finishes that within two months, preaches this sermon. I think he finishes history in August of um, 39, preaches mm-hmm. October of 39, Christ Agony. And he has that that common... Um, theme of not just redemption, but of the um, frailty, weakness, and um, and destruction of man under the figure of the moth, which is um, the uh, the imagery that Edwards uses and builds the history of the work of redemption off of uh, the, out of Isaiah sixty one eight. For the moth shall eat them up like a garment; the worm shall eat them like wool. But my righteousness shall be forever; my salvation from generation to generation. And here, twice in Christ's agony, right at the beginning, uh, Edwards actually says, talking about the the frailty of human nature on account of its weakness. He says, it's like the grass of the field, which easily withers and decays. So it is compared to a leaf, to the dry stubble, to a blast of wind. And the nature of feeble man is said to be but dust and ashes to have its foundation in the dust and to be crushed before the moth. And there he, he alludes to that imagery from, um, the, the the text that he preached history of the work of redemption out of then again in, in under um the second section down the first section second um or I'm sorry, the second section down in, in Christ Agony, he says, um, talking about Jesus' sufferings, this was the thing that filled his soul with sorrow and darkness. This terrible sight, as it were, overwhelmed him, that of the cup. For what was the human nature of Christ to such mighty wrath as this? It was in itself without the supports of God, but a feeble worm of dust, a thing that was crushed before the moth. So you can see how... Edwards is still reflecting on what had so impacted him in that verse out of Isaiah 61.8 that led him to write that massive biblical theological thing and how important that was to him, um, him seeing the contrast between the, the feebleness and the frailty of human nature and, and fallen human nature with the redemption that God had promised, the righteousness and salvation he would bring, and then what that costs God in, in Christ taking to himself coming in the likeness of sinful flesh yet without sin, but then himself, as it were, being crushed like a moth. So I thought that was really interesting, um, just that that close proximity. Also, that it's so important, as you've said, Dave, that at the end of his life, you know, at the end of his ministry, preaching to the Indians in that final year, he preaches it twice. I mean, this is mm-hmm. a significant text to Edwards, what what our Lord undergoes in the garden, the agony that he undergoes is is significant in the mind of this man. Jeff had said to me earlier, you know, you don't re-preach a sermon that bombs. You, know, mm-hmm. you re-preach sermons that have so greatly affected you and have had a great effect on others. So we can conclude this was, um, in that sense, more important, perhaps, in Edwards' thinking. Um, and it squarely puts 
the sufferings of Jesus at the forefront. I want to say one other thing before we dive in here into the content. You know, a lot of times people will say Edwards is too introspective for me and Edwards uh, doesn't do enough exposition and Edwards avoids the objectivity of the gospel. It is impossible to read this sermon and to maintain that criticism on the whole. I mean, there is tons of exposition in the sermon. It is almost a majority exposition about what Jesus is suffering. I I think that's remarkable considering that criticism that's often raised. Criticism, just uh, with all due respect, reveals a a lack of close reading of – well, not even a lack of close reading, just a lack of reading of Edwards. Even even a a scant reading of Edwards, uh, especially his sermons, dispels that myth. Right. Wouldn't you say that what what the that typical criticism is merely a seeing what is uh, Edwards' gift of close, thoughtful, thorough analysis of whatever topic is is got his attention, right? Right. Uh, and so that means that if he's dealing with with the uh, you know self examination like every other topic Edwards deals with, it's going to be thorough. Right, mm-hmm. and it you know he can be exhaustive, but that's in a good thing, especially in a sermon like this, where it makes you you have to to spend time uh, meditating upon the significance, meditating upon the details of what's going on in the Garden of Gethsemane, right, uh, and then what what is the significance of that uh, for your life and my life as a Christian. Uh, this is this is a, in my opinion, a, a phenomenal sermon, a good model, I suppose, oh, yeah. uh, for us when we get to to preach a passage like this. That you don't just sweep over it quickly, which might be a temptation. Right. Well, there, and there's so much theology in here, and this yes. is again just another fine specimen of how theology. Um, in one sense, applies itself. I mean, Edwards will apply this, but theology has great application, and theology is the backbone of, you know, good biblical preaching is sound theology. And so you see, um, Dave, at the outset of this uh, sermon, how Edwards brings, I mean, he doesn't even waste a sentence before he jumps into the theological subject of the human and the divine nature, the you know the ability for Christ to suffer. Um, can he suffer in his divine nature? Can he suffer in his human nature? Why don't you talk a little bit about how he opens this? Yeah, it's a great point. I mean, imagine uh, being in the pews there at Northampton, and Edwards mounts the pulpit. Uh, he doesn't begin with with a joke or a heartwarming illustration or something to kind of wake you up and you know gather your attention. I mean, he he deals with uh, substantive Christology. You know, our Lord Jesus Christ in His original nature was infinitely above all suffering. Now, you know how it is when when you start to read a sermon like this. Um, I think even even maybe somewhat unconsciously, you think I'm just going to get into it and somewhere. You know, a third of the way into it is what I need to get to. And so you just rush into it. But that opening statement, in some ways, is programmatic for uh, the rest of the sermon. Uh, Because of the nature of Christ, he was infinitely above all suffering. And then he shows how this one who is infinitely um, lovely, infinitely, as he says, above suffering, suffers so greatly. And he says that at the very outset, 
And so from the from the very beginning of the sermon, you are you are hit with with strong theology. Uh, but when he became man, he was not only capable of suffering, but partook of that nature that is remarkably feeble and exposed to suffering. Um, so it's it's Christological uh, from the very beginning, but it never ceases to be Christological. In fact, you're talking about the application section, really pretty lengthy application section. And, and again, this is another example of Puritan plain style exposition uh, doctrine and then either what they call use or improvement or application. Did you notice in the text there are sort of like two application sections or did, two yeah. big chunks of application, and both of them are very, very Christological. So this opening statement is programmatic. Um, so, And then not only that, he's not just talking about the nature of Christ being feeble when you get to the cross. He really insists that Christ's principal errand into the world was suffering, right. which is an interesting statement, but that that, that principal errand didn't begin at the cross. Right. That principal errand, which was suffering, is really from the beginning of the incarnation. Mm. Right. I love also how Edwards then takes that and he develops out um, the idea that Christ's suffering had a progressive nature to it. Right after what you just quoted, Dave, he says his suffering increased the more he drew near to the close of his life. His suffering after his public ministry began was probably much greater than before, and the latter part of the time of his public ministry seems to have been distinguished by suffering. The Mm -hmm. longer Christ lived in the world, the more men saw and heard him, the more they hated him. His Mm -hmm. enemies were more and more enraged by the continuance of the opposition he had made to their lust and the devil, having been often baffled by him grew more and more enraged and strengthened the battle more and more against him. So, so that he says the cloud over Christ's head grew darker and darker. And that's, it's important that we think about the savior in that progressive, um, exponential suffering that he endured, like you said, not just at the cross, but especially as his ministry progressed leading up to the cross, um, because he was very God of very God, but he was very man a very man. Um, now Edwards does something interesting in the, in the opening paragraph. He, um, he introduces the main thing, really the main thing he wants to focus on in this text is the agony of Christ as the, as the title intimates that his soul was in agony. And you see that at the end of the, the paragraph that he wants to look at that, that word agonizomai to, to, um, to strive in suffering or to strive for the mastery. Um, and that's really what this whole sermon is going to be about is what was that agony of soul? Mm-hmm. And the fact that that agony, and then this kind of gets into that progressive sort of, you know, dark cloud looming over him, that agony was not just something that was sprung on him at the cross, right. but something that throughout his ministry he was aware of. And yes. Edwards makes a point of saying, that that agony that that agony that bitterness was something he had to be aware of throughout his ministry so that what he did he did in a knowledgeable fashion or he did it you know conscious of the fact this right. is what I'm doing he didn't and, sort of stumble into suffering for us or bite off more than he could chew or something like that and only realize it after the fact no he knew all along he had an awareness uh, an increasing awareness of the agony that was going to be his, and he entered into it knowledgeably. Right. You notice, David, that, that he says there, of course, the Son of God volunteered, of course, in the covenant of redemption to do this. 
But Christ, as to his human nature, had to know this. The, the person of the God-man had to know what he was facing mm. uh, from, the, from the beginning. Uh, mm-hmm. And he goes into that with what we would say are his full eyes wide open. Yeah. Uh, and you see uh, there's, there's that picture, that imagery of the furnace that appears throughout the sermon. That's that's one of my favorite things I've ever read in Edwards is yeah. later on in the sermon when he likens Jesus seeing that cup of the wrath of God set before him, preparing him for the wrath, the cup he would drink at the cross, and that being like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego being led up yes. to the furnace to look in after Nebuchadnezzar heats it up. That's an amazing, you know, biblical Old Testament illustration of. What's going on for Christ? That's, a, that's an example of Edwards. Uh, uh, what's the word I want to use? His his uh, sensitivity to biblical imagery, but mm-hmm. also this is an example of what is often people, the scholars, talk about Edwards' ability to to his desire to impress upon the hearer, and in our case, the reader, uh, an immediate sense of what is going on in the text, right? And you have this, mm-hmm. this, this whole picture of the furnace. And, I'm, and immediately I, I was thinking of, of the Daniel's comrades, right? But also I'm thinking, okay, I've, when I've gone near a furnace, you know, that kind of furnace, it's hot. Mm-hmm. And you look straight in and you see the flames and the destructive nature of the flames. And I think that's what Edwards is getting at. Again, it's imagery that will uh, that will strike the hearers at the very core of their being. Right, and I think he was wanting to get us in. How do I say this? To give give us something of a feel for what Christ and His humanity was sensing, was right. experiencing emotionally. You know, when he speaks of his feeble human nature shrunk at the sight and was ready to sink, and I wonder. If at times, because we do so defend the deity of Christ, as well we should, I wonder sometimes if we slip into sort of um, almost an unwitting docetism. Right, right. And and we lose a certain sympathy for Christ and his humanity. Right. How terrible it must have been for him to to look over into this furnace, how how tempted he was to shrink back and and, and be crushed, Like, like any of us any of us would be. Yeah. And I mean, if you think about um, what Edwards will say about what that, what was in that cup, you know, the wrath of God, and he doesn't waste any time um, getting to the fact that that is, um, that it was the wrath of God that we deserve. Um, He'll say the sorrow and distress, which his soul then suffered arose from that lively and full and immediate view, which he had then given him of that cup of wrath by which God the Father did, as it were, set the cup down before him. When you think about that, and you think about um, our own frailties, our own weaknesses, as you've pointed out, um, Dave, we we tend to fail to see Christ as um, the weak Savior, the you know, he's under, he realizes that he is going to have to put himself under the wrath of God. Um, None of us have ever had um, anything like that set before us to that degree. And, and Edwards will even say that early on. He'll say none of God's children ever had such a cup put before them that right. they knew they'd have to drink it that immediately and that 
to that extent that Jesus would have to. Um, it's striking. It is, you know, if we think about the temptations of Jesus overall, not just here in the garden with the cup of wrath and the temptation to shrink back from that. But um, if you think of, for instance, a familiar passage, Hebrews four fourteen to 16, you know, where uh, it is said of Jesus that he was at all points tempted, even as are we, yet was without sin. And I heard uh, uh, Dr. Dave Garner uh, one time talk about that passage. It's a really insightful statement he made about the fact that it's not just that Jesus endured the same temptations we have. He endured more because whereas I will endure temptation up to a point and then I'll, I'll fold like a lawn chair, right, and cave into it. Jesus endured that same temptation even beyond that because he didn't give into it. So I'll, you know, I'll endure temptation up to a point, cave into that temptation, and be tempted no more, right? That temptation's, you know, won me over. Christ endured a temptation, yet was without sin, meaning he endured it even beyond what I've experienced, a temptation, a particular temptation, uh, because he didn't cave into it. He didn't give into it. And, and to think here, he endures this temptation, and whereas I certainly would have caved in, certainly would have thrown in the towel, he endures it beyond what I would have even experienced it as. Not, not, not to mention the fact that he's enduring it as one infinitely lovely, right? Right. Infinitely glorious. Um, hey, I want to deviate from the sermon just for a moment and ask y- y'all about this. Um, it's become common in our day to hear people say that when Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which Edwards mentions in the intro of this, that his suffering culminates in that cry. Uh, It's become common for people to say, well, he wasn't really forsaken by his father. He was only emotionally forsaken. Um, It only seemed that he was forsaken. I, I, I have always held that he actually was forsaken. Now, obviously in the divine nature, God can't forsake God obviously, but as mm-hmm. the divine was um, united to the human nature and the hypostatic union, that when the human nature, when the soul was uh, forsaken, it was really forsaken. It didn't just yeah. seem to be forsaken. Well, you know, if you want to compare the forsakenness with being under the curse, as the Apostle Paul will talk about in Galatians, right, citing from Deuteronomy 24, Christ became a curse for us, Right. And that's another way of looking at at the forsakenness uh, of the uh, cross. Uh, I think you're right. The, uh, now, as you already said, the triune God can't be uh, sh- shred into pieces. However, right. as to his human nature, and of course, that's what Edward spends a lot of time talking about, right. the, the human nature, uh, and not the human nature as Adam had it before the fall, but the human nature that we have as a result of the fall, with the exception that he never sinned. Right. Not a minor exception, but an exception. Uh, of, nonetheless, he had a feeble human nature. Now, of course, he'll say that it's the, uh, the divine nature that upheld the, the human nature, right? Because the human nature is feeble, right. uh, it would not, without his divine nature, the two natures in one person, without that, it would not have sustained the the uh the temptation and it's interesting he goes into a fair bit of detail considering uh noting the fact that Christ could have could have gotten out of dodge so to speak right because he because he was it, this wasn't a surprise 
right? He wasn't caught unaware about what was coming. Here he is in the garden. The disciples are over there, you know, catching a few winks, and he's wrestling with the, the, the reality of what's coming. He could have snuck out by night, right? Because I think Edwards talks about right. he's in the garden at night. It's, in the, it's cool. Uh, the, Judas hasn't yet come. He hasn't brought the temple guards with him, but they're, they're coming. They're on their way. He had an opportunity. Had he so desired, he could have escaped. Right. Right, because his apprehension, he talks about, you know, he could have escaped before even the apprehension began. But once, once the apprehension in the garden it was it was over at that point. You right. remember where he talks about that? It, I, I love how he keeps drawing our attention not away from the cross, but I think he magnifies the cross by things like it wasn't just at the cross that Christ suffered. His suffering began at his incarnation. It wasn't just there at the cross that he gave himself over. It was the fact that he didn't avoid apprehension because once the soldiers, once, once the garrison came, once the soldiers came and he was apprehended, there was no turning back at that point. Right, right, right. right. Um, as Edwards develops this sermon, he moves from not just talking about the soul agony generally or theologically, but he talks about how we know, in a sense, focusing in on the, the sweaty blood, the, the drops of blood that he... Um, he bled. Interesting. I remember reading this as a young Christian and really finding it fascinating the way that Edwards reasons that Jesus was outside when it was cold. Insight he has into the temperature, the climate, right. and the physicality of all that. Thoughts on that? Because, I mean, that's I kind of that an unusual section, thing, right? I think that section, and, and this is at least in the Banner edition, the Hickman edition is on 868 for our listeners, but Nick, I think that section is really fascinating because He's he's doing some exegesis there where he's talking um, about the word thromboy. But then you're right. He he starts deducing from the fact that, well, there was a fire of coals over there. So it must have been chilly. And if it was chilly, here's what was happening to the blood as it was coming out of his pores. I think it's uh, I think it's fascinating. Yeah. Um, he's I paying know- attention to the details, right? Yeah. Uh, of the, the exegetical the details yeah, and the contextual the details. Yeah. Right, right. It's, it is interesting. I know I've, I've heard a number of theologians try to explain the physical addition, technically, mentally, mm-hmm. what, what mm-hmm. this is. And- Hematidosis is the technical term for, for the sweating, as it were, great drops of blood. Mm-hmm. Right, right. And, um, and how rare that is, that that right. actually could ever occur and what kind of um, distress someone have to, should have to have. And, and so Edward says in that one section where he's talking about the, the fire of coals and the cold outside and the, and the blood clotting because of that cold and the distress, he says, Christ's inward distress and grief was not merely such as caused him to be in a violent and universal sweat, but such as caused him to sweat blood. The distress and anguish of his mind was so un- unspeakably extreme as to force his blood through the pores of his skin and that so plentifully as to fall in great clots or drops from his body to the ground, which really, when you think about that, I mean, that God, the Holy Spirit felt that that was important, that we would know Mm. that Jesus would shed blood, not through nails, piercing his hands and feet. And, and isn't that the point that the main sufferings of Christ 
are not those physical sufferings as awful as they would have been that he endured at the hands of men, produced by men, but those spiritual sufferings, right? I mean, this is yeah, the right. prelude to helping us understand the gospel. It is, and it ties back in, Nick, to what you were saying about forsakenness uh, a second ago. Um, he, you know, on, on 872, in, in one of the application sections, he describes that forsakenness. You know, back to your point, he really was forsaken, Um where he says, well, he, he's doing it in the context of sinners who, you know, unrepentant sinners in eternity are forsaken by God with no hope of him loving them. He, he does say that while God forsook Christ, he still loved him. That's why Christ could call him my God. But he describes it this way. Um, God withdrew his comfortable presence from Christ and hid his face from him and so poured out his wrath upon him and made him feel its terrible effects in his soul. But yet he knew at the same time God did not hate him, but infinitely loved him. He cried out to God's forsaken him or forsaking him, but yet at the same time calls him my God, my God, knowing that he was his God still, though he had forsaken him. And he goes on to say, But the wicked in hell will know that he is not their God, but their judge and irreconcilable enemy. But it was his it wasn't just the piercing of the hands and the feet, but it was that soul anguish. It was that suffering in his soul. And even as we're reading this, it, it reminds me of a quotation by Thomas Watson, and I can't think of where it is, but where Watson says something to the effect of, Christ went more willingly to the cross than I go in prayer. You know, Christ went more willingly to the cross than I go to the throne of grace in prayer. It's very indicting, very convicting. It is. Christ goes to the cross with this kind of soul agony, yet willingly he went. Now, I want to bring up another thing that you'll sometimes find in Edward's writings, and you two are both aware of this. Um, I've read in him, uh, perhaps in History of the Work of Redemption and maybe in the Miscellanies, where um, Edwards will talk about, you know, there were three times that Christ shed blood, and he'll only speak, obviously, of the garden and the cross here in this sermon, but elsewhere he'll talk about at his circumcision on the eighth day, there was the shedding of blood, obviously prefiguring the cross, that also being a foretaste. Here in the garden, him shedding blood, and then obviously at Calvary, his, his blood shed unto death. And Edwards will talk about um, that is atoning blood. Now, that's, that's something I've wrestled with because obviously the, script, the, the writers of Scripture, the apostles and prophets are going to focus on his sufferings making atonement at the cross is there some sense in which the bloodshed prior to that is part of his redemptive work i i i think so once you once you grant the point that his misery and his sufferings begin at the incarnation which by the way is a confessional point right uh, the the standards say that uh, the misery of his life began at birth or at conception right not not at you know so many months before the cross. Uh, the fact that we don't typically think about that doesn't make it wrong, right? Right. Uh, to typically, our response to, to some new way of thinking about something is to reject it be, because it's new. Uh, but Edwards, I think, is right here that, that uh, there, there's a typological element going on here, of course, as well. The, the, circum mm -hmm. the cross is, has often been fruitfully understood to be a, a kind of circumcision, right? Mm -hmm, right, right. Uh, so it, it, why would there be a problem, especially between the typological relationship circumcision 
and his time in the Garden of Gethsemane and his work on the cross and the fact that his sufferings begin with the incarnation and and not with the cross. They they culminate in the cross. And think about this as well, uh, whether this was in Edward's mind, I can't, I'm not sure. But remember that in Philippians chapter 2, the cross is the culmination of his sufferings. Uh, it's not the only suffering. We've already said this, right? Mm-hmm. But this relates to the relationship of his active and passive obedience. Yeah, right, right. 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 I think it's quite consistent. I really right. think it's quite consistent. Well, so, uh, what, what Edwards is doing here is, is, is masterful. Uh, and it, it, actually what it does is it, it shames me when, when I think about my feeble attempts to preach a faithful, textually sensitive exposition uh, I'm go- I'm looking at this. I'm going. My goodness! I don't even come close uh, to this kind of. And it's not merely pedantic. It's a, he, he's got a practical aim in view, right? When he's when he's looking at this, mm-hmm. this this even before he gets to the the use section or the application section, I'm reading this and and I am profoundly moved with regard to what my Lord went through for me. Right, mm. right, right. Well, and, and I think that's the same. You had the same. You both have had the same reaction uh, as you've read through the, this sermon. Yeah, and right. I think focusing on the whole life suffering of Christ, as um, Edwards does, um, it's interesting to notice those. As I mentioned, the three periods of bloodshed. He actually says in history, the work of redemption. He says, and so to instance in Christ's circumcision as a baby, what he suffered in that had the nature of satisfaction. The blood that was shed in his circumcision was propitiatory blood, but as it was a conformity to the law of Moses, it was part of his meritorious righteousness. And they're keeping, like you said, Jeff, the active and passive. And then Owen, John Owen actually says, and I, I found this to be very rewarding in volume three of the works in the Banner Truth Edition page pages 204 to 205, Owen says, It is true, every act almost of Christ's obedience from the blood of his circumcision to the blood of his cross was attended with suffering so that his whole life might in that regard be called a death. And Mm -hmm. that really drives home what Edwards is emphasizing about the shedding of that blood and the atonement in this sermon. Um, Dave, any more thoughts on that? Yeah, it's interesting you bring up John Owen in Volume 3 there because um, in Volume 5 of the works of Owen uh, in the uh, the Doctrine of Justification by Faith, and this is on pages 253 to 54, he's, uh, of course, what's going on, you know, contextually, historically contextually for Owen is, you know, he is um, engaged in this uh, debate somewhat friendly debate between him and, and Richard Baxter over imputation and justification, etc. But, you know, correlating with what you just said there, he, he, um, he says, that which we plead is that the Lord Christ fulfilled the whole law for us. He did not only undergo the penalty of it due unto our sins, but also yielded that perfect obedience which it did require. And herein I shall not enmix myself in the debate of the distinction between the active and passive obedience of Christ. Now, he's not denying the active and passive obedience of Christ or even denying the distinction. But he makes an interesting point here. For he exercised the highest active obedience in his suffering when he offered himself to God through the eternal spirit. And all his obedience, considering his person, I think that's a key phrase, this is Owen, 
and all his obedience, considering his person, was mixed with suffering as part of his exonition, which is Latin for self-denial, self-emptying, self-renouncing, you know, mm-hmm. uh, renouncing. And humiliation, whence it is said that though he were a son, yet he learned obedience by the things he suffered. In other words, there is this sense in which him being circumcised, fulfilling the law, was itself uh, inmixed with suffering. It involves suffering. And if it involves suffering, um, that that is for us vicarious, right? right. So it's a real, real interesting. I don't think he's blurring the distinction between active and passive obedience. I think he is showing us there's not this hard terminus, you know, between the two that, that, that we can create this hard bifurcation between active and passive obedience as if in his actively obeying the law, it didn't involve suffering and in his suffering, he wasn't obeying. That makes sense. Right. Yeah, 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 what you're saying, two things, and, and, and you know, a little bit, um, being a little bit cheeky when I say this, there is a perichoretic interpenetration of the active and passive obedient. Yeah. And, and there is the distinct yet inseparability, a distinction yet inseparability to the two. It was never, it's an analytical distinction. It was never meant to suggest, as it sometimes does, uh, two different righteousnesses right or two right. different kinds of obedience it's one life of obedience that culminates in his death on the cross which of course i think is the point again of philippians chapter two mm-hmm. and by the way uh, if i can uh echo dave's comments but say even further that if there was ever if you had one book to read on the book on justification uh buchanan is very good Mm-hmm. And there are many, many really excellent books, but the book to read on justification, because there, it, it addresses uh, contemporary debates, and yet it was written 400 and some, 300 and some years ago, is John Owen's book on justification. Right. It is tough right. going. It is tough going, but it is worth the slog, if you will, through the mud, if you want to describe it that way. Uh, there are so many gems in, in that volume. Uh, that are right. so helpful, both theologically and and pastorally. I think uh, the debate, I Jeff. Like, I I totally agree. I think the debate between Owen and Baxter, and particularly Owen's "The Doctrine of Justification" and Baxter's uh, "Aphorisms of Justification," is in some ways prophetic. Right? It, yeah. It's like deja vu with the debate that exists, you know, in recent years over imputation, and um, you know, kind of kind of this sort of post conservative commitment to mere Christianity, whatever that means for whoever is uttering the phrase at any given time, you, you see it being dealt with between Owen and Baxter right. Uh, right. in the uh, 1600s there. And we know that Edwards was a st- read Owen, uh, right. was a student of Owen. We know that if you read his, uh, I believe his reading uh, catalog, uh, volume 26 of the Yale edition of the, the works, you'll see that. But in, in other places, Edwards uh, uh, will note that he he right. has uh, been influenced by uh, John Owen. So we're not we're not merely uh juxtaposing texts that have no real connection to one another but they right. do. Right. Good these point. are these are truths that are embraced by both of those great men. Um before uh Edwards moves into the application section of this sermon um which is much um 
it's full of exposition too and application. But um, Edwards talks about the necessity of what Christ underwent in the garden. This is very interesting because what he'll argue is, and he'll say, if Christ had not fully known what the dreadfulness of these sufferings were before he took them upon himself, his taking them upon him could not have been fully his own act as man. There could have been no explicit act of his will about that which he was ignorant of, there could have been no proper trial whether he would be willing to undergo such dreadful sufferings or not. So in the divine nature, obviously we can say he knew, he was willing to do this, he laid down his life willingly. In the human nature, he laid down his life willingly in order for that to be, um, in order for him to do that, as it were, Edwards is going to say Christ had to know before he underwent it in this full way, in this fuller sense, what he was about to endure so that his willingness then was, um, his willingness then was, uh, shows the greatness of, uh, it being an explicit act of his will. He'll talk about his, his love to sinners, his love to God, his obedience to God. Um, that's really a remarkable thought. Yeah, the, the love to sinners part there, you know, and this gets into the idea of he went into this in a knowledgeable fashion. Right. As Jeff said earlier, you know, eyes wide open. But I think the thing that moved me more than anything in this sermon, and, th- and this one is one, well, I mean, we could say this about every sermon we, we cover, one worth reading and rereading, but this certainly, <laughs> <laughs> this certainly is, man. I sound like a broken record. But did y'all catch that beautiful section? I mean, I just wrote in, you know, marginalia here, Beautiful with an exclamation point where he talked about the, you know, as he considered that knowledge of the agony before him, yet the love that motivated him. And listen to this. This is the most beautiful thing. It's on 869 that it was so strong as to carry him through that agony that he was then in. The suffering that he then was actually subject to was dreadful and amazing, as has been shown. And how wonderful was his love that lasted and was upheld still. The love of any mere man or angel would doubtless have sunk under such a weight and never would have endured such a conflict and such a bloody sweat as that of Jesus Christ. The anguish of Christ's soul at that time was so strong as to cause that wonderful effect on his body. But his love to his enemies, poor and unworthy as they were, was stronger still. The heart of Christ at that time was full of distress, but it was fuller of love to vile worms. His sorrows abounded, but his love did much more abound. Christ's soul was overwhelmed with a deluge of grief, but this was from a deluge of love to sinners in his heart, sufficient to overflow the world and overwhelm the highest mountains of its sins. Those great drops of blood that fell down to the ground were a manifestation of an ocean of love in Christ's heart. The strength of Christ's love more especially appears in this, that when he had such a full view of that knowledge, right, a full view of the dreadfulness of the cup that he was to drink that so amazed him, he would notwithstanding even then take it up and drink it. That's, that's just beautiful. Is, that is. You know, um, I know we don't have enough time to go through <clears throat> all of the applications in this sermon, but it is remarkable that that is what he begins with, and he spends such a, a good amount of time on under the application section is how it was the love of Christ led him through the necessity of these sufferings for his people. Um, 
Also interesting, Edwards alludes to this, though he doesn't put it the same way I've heard Sinclair Ferguson put it. But when when Edward when Jesus comes to to pray to his father that he take the cup from him if it be possible, and he, he you know his soul is as it were taken back by sight of these and and frightened and sorrowed and afflicted by sight of what he's going to go through that. I've heard Ferguson say this, and I know Edwards does allude to this in the sermon that um, it would have been it would have been sin for Jesus not to pray. Um, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me, because it would have been sinful for a sinless man to want forsakenness as a perfect man from the Holy God, mm, or to mm-hmm. to embrace that in his unfallen human nature. Um, that's an interesting thought, isn't it? About even the necessity of him um, praying what he prayed as he faced that cup. So it's very not mere, interesting. Not mere human weakness. It does not, not merely the desire to avoid suffering, but it's as a result also of his divine nature his, or his perfect sinless humanity. Right, right. There's so much. I mean, there's so much about the oh, Garden of Gethsemane wow, that's yeah. mysterious and wonderful mm-hmm. and instructive. Um, Edwards, and along with that, Nick, with regard to prayer, if I could interject something here, not only would it not have been right for him not to have prayed because a righteous one would not want separation from God, but did you catch the part? And this was in one of the application sections. I loved this, the way he ties in Christ's very act of praying with his proper function as a priest. Right. You know, Christ right. offered up these strong cries with his flesh in the same manner as a priest of old were wont to offer up prayers with their sacrifices. Christ mixed strong crying and tears with his blood. Right. And so offered um, and so offered up his blood and his prayers together that the effect and success of his blood might be obtained. Yeah. Such earnest, agonizing prayers were offered with his blood, and his infinitely precious and meritorious blood was offered with his prayers. Yeah, that's amazing. Mm. It is. Um, it really is amazing. Now, Edwards will make a number of applications that, as I said, we don't have time to go into all of them, but to say that what we see in Christ's sufferings in the garden, um, that that shows forth the the not only the love of Christ, but the hatefulness, the wickedness that we have exercised and that we deserve wrath for that must be atoned for, that it shows Christ's submission to his Father. There's a, a lengthy section on Christ's submission to the Father and the importance of that. It shows... Um, um, in in Edwards' words, the sottishness of sinners who downplay the wrath of God, um, and then picking up on the the prayer aspect that you just mentioned, his prayer as the high priest. But Edwards will say that this will teach us to pray to God. Yeah, it shows the coldness of our own prayers, right, right, and the the fervency of our Lord Jesus and the perseverance that he would go three times to the Father, um, and then. Um, Edwards will talk about these things showing forth the victory of our captain. Um, the victory of our captain keeps us back from being sunk, sunk underneath God's wrath. That, that what Jesus endures in the garden gives us assurance of Jesus' own readiness to receive sinners. If he was willing to undergo that, is he not willing to receive us, all those who come to him in faith? Um, and then that he was the most worthy person who ever prayed and, and, 
obviously Edwards is returning full circle to um, focus on what this means for Jesus. But I'm fascinated. I want us to close in these final minutes talking about the final point, that this is how we must pray for the salvation of others. Thoughts on that? Well, it certainly uh, is a humbling thing, isn't it, that when we consider our our own prayer lives in general, and, and then thinking about uh, praying for others' uh, salvation, we fall far short of this, don't we? Yeah, Expo- that, it exposes me. That's how I yeah, feel right now. I right, feel exposed. Yeah, yeah that Very you know so. that the Lord would spend Himself in this way, and Edwards would say we should be willing to spend and be spent for unbelievers. That if our Savior. And and his apostle Paul quoting Second Corinthians twelve fifteen, Edwards will essentially argue that if our Savior was willing to spend and be spent, even to the point of shedding drops of blood in agony for the salvation of others, can we not pray um, for the salvation of our loved ones so earnestly? And he says at the end, here's an example for parents. I love this, mm-hmm. showing how they ought to labor and cry to God for the spiritual good of their children. Mm. You see how Christ labored and strove and cried to God for the salvation of his spiritual children. Will you not earnestly seek and cry to God for your natural children? What a way, Amen. What a way to Amen. end right, right. this sermon. I mean, what a way to take all of that rich theological, biblical theological, systematic theological truth and then bring it home. Um, in full force, that God's heart is for the salvation of people. Christ's labors were for the salvation of his people. Our, you know, pursuing and longing for the salvation of others, um, that they would know him, ought to result in that. And so it's convicting, it's encouraging, um, it's appropriate, the way that he ends this sermon. Well, we are out of time, but... Uh, I've thoroughly enjoyed this, and thank you, Jeff and Dave, for being willing to be on the show again. Thank you. Um, our listeners can find Dave, and you're going to have to help me with the, the domain name. It's teachinglikerain.wordpress.com. That's right. Okay, good, good. Um, That's right. You can also listen to uh, some of Dave's sermons and teaching at Christ Presbyterian Church. And what is the uh, URL for that? www.christprez.org christprez.org so Mm -hmm. if you're looking for a new sermon series to listen to be edified by please go there and check that out Uh, you can find Jeff as usual all over the web feeding on Christ (laughs) Christ the Center Reformed Forum uh, over at Calvary OPC in Ringo, New Jersey you can find him and his sermons there And uh, I want to encourage you to tune in again for another episode of East of Eden, the Biblical and Systematic Theology of Jonathan Edwards. Mm -hmm.